Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Harry Saunders, the Managing Director of Decision Processes Incorporated. Harry has consulted at numerous Fortune 100 companies, including Chevron, General Motors, and Hewlett-Packard, helping executive teams make higher quality decisions in the face of risk. Following Daniel Kazum and Leonard Brooks's work on energy consumption and behavior, Harry coined the Kazum-Brooks postulate, which broadly states that increased energy efficiency leads to increased energy consumption. Known as the godfather of rebound, Harry is an international expert on energy efficiency and consumption. He most recently surveyed and analyzed 30 sectors of the U.S. economy for historical evidence of rebound. Based on his analysis and historical records, he argues that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's estimates for carbon emissions reductions are based on improper estimates of the rebound effect. The rebound effect is not something that I personally was aware of before I spoke with Harry, but was introduced to him because the rebound effect is an important consideration when doing proper emissions modeling, and one that at least Harry claims is not properly factored in and has broad implications. I'll let you hear the episode and you can form your own conclusions, but at minimum, it gives us a lot to think about and another area to probe to make sure that our forecasting and modeling is solid. Harry Saunders, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you, although by the time this ships, it's not going to be New Year anymore, but for us it is. So There you go. Well, that's what counts. But yeah, I'm excited for this discussion. I think as I told you when we spoke a little bit beforehand, I have much less experience interviewing scientists, and I've had much less of them on the show relative to people that are more in my comfort zone, like entrepreneurs, just due to my experience. But given the importance of the science and my commitment to not just making this a capital pursuit, but really exploring how to fundamentally solve the problem of climate change in a durable way, it's important to look at the science too. And so I'm going to kind of hold my nose and, and jump in the deep end here because I think it's important to do so. So I'm honored to have you. Yeah, well, thank you. And I think most people would place me more in the category of economist than scientist, but there's kind of a mixture there. So, Well, maybe that's a good place to start, Harry. It's just it'd be great to hear for my benefit and for listeners' benefit. Just tell me about your background. How'd you get into this? And, and tell me about the work that you do. Long story. Don't know exactly where to start. That, my friend, is up to you. You have artistic liberty, for better or for worse. All right. Yes. Let's hope it's for better. Well, it really started in the 1960s when I was, you know, college student and got interested in the environment. I started life as a physicist, so always been sort of science engineering oriented around it, but got interested in the environment, but particularly the connection between energy use or among energy use, economics, and climate change. And so that led me on a long journey. Did you just hit your head in the shower and those were the three areas that were converging or how did that come about? Well, it really came about when I saw an article on peak oil. And 
I said to myself, well, wait a minute, if oil is such a fundamental part of the economy, what happens when that happens? What happens to economic activity? Well, in those days, it was mostly the environment. Climate change wasn't, we weren't aware of it yet. The signal to noise ratio was very, very low. So I don't know, it might have happened in the shower where I hit my head. I don't know, possibly. (laughs) Tell me about the difference between climate change and environment. So peak oil, and so if it's not climate change, that's the word with peak oil, then what is it? Back then, it was basically pollution, air quality, water quality. It was becoming very evident that economic activity was having a negative effect on the planet. Just by way of further background, I was not a full-time academic all these years. I made my living as a management consultant. And then all this academic research was kind of like a hobby. So it was like hotel rooms, airplanes, nights, weekends, vacations. So I thought of it as sort of a hobby. And my wife and four kids think it's a ridiculous hobby, but it's been satisfying to me. They must think you're pretty cool, though, since your nickname is the Godfather of Rebound. Oh, where did you get that one? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I got into that in sort of the late 70s, I guess. But to paint a bigger picture, what possesses me right now is sort of long-term civilizational sustainability. So I look at it this way. It's like, okay, so there's something like 100 billion stars in our galaxy, most of which have planets. There's 100 billion galaxies in the visible universe. Somewhere out there is a civilization that has achieved indefinite sustainability within the bounds of their planetary natural capital. And I want to know what their economy looks like. How did they do this? So that's kind of my current, what possesses me at the moment. So you're suggesting then that it doesn't look like what our economy looks like today? That's the question I want to explore. Can you have a a free market, private ownership economy that still allows indefinite sustainability for a civilization on a bounded planet? So done a fair amount of work modeling (laughs) to see what does that look like. And it's kind of looking like, yeah, you can do that. That may be the best form of an economy is free market private ownership economy overlain by government got to set the rules and it only works if you have like perfect competition. And so there's got to be a government there. But that engine, I worry a little bit that we got to tame the horse, but we can't kill the horse that's going to take us into the future, especially when you consider the economic hardship we see today in developing countries. I've kind of wandered off there. Bring me back here. Yeah. So you were talking about how you were a management consultant and there was this intersection of energy and economics and climate that were converging and that you wanted to focus in these areas and that you kind of switch back and forth between the management consulting and academia over the course of a long career. I think that's where we were. Yeah, you got it. And so why do they call you the godfather of rebound? Oh, geez. Okay. (laughs) So maybe let me first say a word about what rebound is. Okay. 
The larger question is energy efficiency. And if you look at all the um, projections of climate models and so forth, energy efficiency plays a very large role in determining what energy demand and consequent emissions will be. Is energy efficiency where you spent the bulk of your academic pursuits? So far, yeah, I would say that's fair. I'm moving away from that now, but yes, that's the bulk of it. And so rebound is the idea that when you introduce an energy efficiency gain, you don't get a one-for-one reduction in energy use associated with that. Basic ideas, roughly speaking, it because it looks to users like a price reduction. And so there's a tendency to use more of it. And so the question is, well, how much more? Is it trivial or is it large? And it's all over the map really now. I mean, there's probably hundreds now of peer-reviewed papers looking at the question. But it seems like it is significant and large. And what that means is, so if you look at the... um, projections of the International Energy Agency, for example. International Energy Agency calls energy efficiency the first fuel. Enormous amount of savings can come from energy efficiency. But studies are showing that rebound eats up a bunch of that. And so that has obvious implications for emissions projections. And colleagues and I are trying to sort out how much, where that happens, and should we do anything about it? And by the way, there's a a little wrinkle in all of that, which is that energy efficiency in itself and rebound in itself actually increases economic welfare. So there are trade-offs there that especially are lead to some thorny ethical issues when it comes to third world countries and whether they should try to suppress this rebound thing or not. Do you view your role as an academic? Is it more to understand this issue and then leave it to others to debate the path forward in terms of what we should do with this information? Or do you form conclusions about that side as well? Well, conclusion, for example, would be uh, we have to be very, very careful in trying to counteract rebound in developing countries. That'll hurt them. I just want to point out, it's mostly kind of describing the playing field. So right now, I've been writing a paper with some 18 colleagues from around the world where we're trying to highlight what we know, what we don't know, and what we need to learn. And there are areas of contention that we want to highlight. So it's to try to display the playing field to policymakers help them understand pitfalls, and also where these areas of contention are, potential areas for other researchers to find fruitful, productive research projects. And what topic are you writing this paper on? This topic is, well, the title is going to be Energy Efficiency. What have we gotten from energy efficiency in the last 40 years? Something like that. You published a paper on this in 2013? I published several. I don't know which one maybe you're referring to. Well, I read, and so in prep for this interview, I read one that you published in 20, 
I think it was 2013, and then it seemed like it was pretty contentious where the NRDC and some other academics were writing rebuttals. And so I guess it'd be good to understand where that paper fits into your overall body of work, but it would also be good to understand if it's been contentious, why has it been contentious, what form has that contention took, just maybe more color around both of those things. Yeah, so it it really goes back to Amory Lovins made claims starting in the 70s that there were huge, huge reductions in energy use possible via energy efficiency. So a few of us started challenging that. But there are kind of two camps there. The Amory was not the only one. Amory, by the way, is a very bright, brilliant guy. And for 30 years, I consider him a friend, but we kind of knock heads around this topic. And so there has been a camp that's sort of saying, well, rebound is overblown. Doesn't matter. It's second order effect at best. We can ignore it. Let's go full out on energy efficiency. And it will save us a whole bunch of emissions and energy use. So organizations like the NRDC and so forth took pot shots at the analysis. But that seems to have settled down. And I think there's a pretty strong consensus among researchers worldwide that it is something that we definitely have to pay attention to. You worry about urgency, it makes urgency even greater if we're kind of fooling ourselves about how much it can accomplish by way of emissions reductions. So when people like Amory have talked about energy efficiency historically, what do they mean in terms of actions and by whom? So Amory, the Rocky Mountain Institute that he founded, has done lots of studies that are right down on the ground in the dirt with companies and industries, showing them ways that they can reduce their energy use. So he's got you know, a host of practical suggestions along those lines, but then aggregates it all together into a global picture that doesn't, to me, fit reality very closely. <laughs> and those suggestions, just high level, what kinds of things do they advocate for? There's many different, but one that springs to mind recently is just they figure out ways to adjust piping an industrial plant that reduces energy loss in the flow of various products and gases. So it's quite concrete and that's good. And by the way, energy efficiency is, it's good. We need to pursue it because it is welfare creating. It's a good thing. It's just, I think we have to be careful about fooling ourselves how much it can do for us emissions wise. Okay. So as your contention is that this rebound effect, it's essentially, is a good analogy for this that let's say there's a snack, crackers, Wheat Thins crackers, I'll even make it more specific. And they come out with Wheat Thins crackers that say they're 50% less calories and fat. And so the rebound effect would essentially say because these crackers have 50% less calories and fat, I'm going to eat three times more of them. Yeah, yeah. So there's probably a good way to tackle the issue that I think you're getting at is there's a difference between energy used by households and energy used by the productive economy. By that, I mean industry, commercial transportation, and commerce. Household side is what you use in your home and 
for personal transportation. And so we look around, we say, well, geez, you know, if I, if I change my light bulbs to efficient LED light bulbs, I'm not going to run them twice as long or that kind of thing. And so there is evidence that in the household side where most of us are inclined to draw our picture about what any energy efficiency does or promises is only about one third of the energy use of the global economy. Two thirds is over on the productive side of the economy. And that's where we're seeing very large rebounds occurring. Data analysis and measurement and so forth are, it's quite troubling. So it's a different thing because in economists speak, households maximize their utility, whereas producers maximize their profit. And that leads to different behavior around energy efficiency. And then, of course, there's the whole, and I know this is dear to your heart, it's a really complex systems problem as it works through the economy, you know, various sectors. It's a really complex systems problem to really see if I introduce energy efficiency over here, how is it going to affect overall economy-wide energy use? And people are working on that and doing great work, but wow, it's complicated. But the point being, getting back to your cracker analogy, it's a little different on the uh, productive side of the economy equation when it comes to energy. I'm not sure about calories, but (laughs) so that has to be taken account of. You know, we have to change our picture of what energy efficiency does outside our personal realm of experience. And so on the commercial side, if that's where the bulk of the rebound is occurring, are there any examples that come to mind that are illustrative of this effect and why it might be occurring? Is there any example that can just highlight what is occurring? And then it'd be interesting to also then take a look at why it's occurring psychologically or incentive-wise or what's bringing this about. Most of the studies basically take time series data of energy use by industry, commerce, commercial transportation, and then track through, kind of measure the energy efficiency that has occurred over that time and look to see how that matches with, is it a one-for-one reduction in energy use per unit energy efficiency, or is it a lot less, or is there even backfire and there's evidence that there's backfire. I know you want to get concrete. It's just very theoretical. And so I'm just trying to understand it in the real world. Yeah. Suppose you have a production process And some brilliant engineer comes up with a way to produce the same amount of output with a whole bunch less energy. And you say, wow, that's good. You know, let's do that. But then part of what happens is that, well, guess what? It allows for an increase in profitable output of that, which drags up energy use. It also reduces the price of the product that your customers see. So they want more of it, and more of it requires more energy. Does this tie back then more broadly to the question about GDP growth and where that fits into our future as it relates to keeping the planet viable for life? Sure does, yeah. And researchers have been doing lots of work on the connection between energy use and GDP and emissions, and it's a complicated problem, but they're 
is a pretty tight link between energy use and GDP. So I'd like to go back and just one of the things that we talked about earlier was you sort of said, how has my perspective changed on things over the years? I'll circle it back to the GDP question, but it relates to third world countries. So in 1977, I was at the International Energy Agency. At that time, there was something going on called the North-South Conference, North being the so-called rich countries, G7, the South being the developing countries, G17. And I got to go to a, a session and developing countries, there's a lot of discussion, you know, we need to industrialize. We got to get some heavy industry in here and we got to, we really have to develop. So on a break, I went over to one of the folks from the South, might've been from Ghana. And I asked him, I said, so here I am, 60s guy, environment, you don't want pollution. What do you want industry for, et cetera, et cetera. And I said to him, don't you worry that if you do all this industrialization that you're going to pollute your environment. And this was a tectonic shift for me in my viewpoint. He looked me in the eye and he said, you've never been hungry a day in your life, have you? And it was like, boom. Okay, there's a shift in perspective. It's not just about pollution. It's about the welfare of people that are dirt poor and struggling and suffering and just got a whole lot more complicated. So when we come to GDP, they need GDP, using that as the proxy for economic welfare. There's billions of people in the world today that survive on traditional fuels like dung and charcoal, huge indoor air pollution problems. Something over a billion people don't have access to electricity. And if there's something we need, so we're going to need more energy. So if I can ask one question, one discrepancy I've heard from people coming at the climate world from different perspectives is that there are people that have worked on it a long time and think it's an important problem that have very diverging viewpoints on one specific topic. And what that topic is, is how bad are things going to get? Because for some people, they say, you know what? It's going to get bad, but it's not going to get as bad as people say. And yeah, we need to focus on solving them, but we also need to factor in energy poverty and the growth of the middle class in developing countries. And it'd be hypocritical of us to say that they can't. And I understand that perspective. There's another group of people that say, yo, if we don't figure this out, it's not just the poorest that are going to suffer. It's all of us because we're all going to be the dinosaurs. And like the planet will not be inhabitable for, for human life any longer. There's catastrophic tipping points to worry about. There's whatever the opposite of virtuous cycles are, right? Where one thing feeds off the next and then it, acidification of the ocean and the carbon in the air and the droughts and the heat and the put certain parts of the planet uninhabitable and forced migration and war. Before we even get into equity, what is your view just in terms of at a macro level in the aggregate for our species, how bad are things going to get? Both those points of view are correct. And so it is a huge problem. It's urgent and it's frightening, but I tend to be an optimist. I think 
these problems can be solved. Yes, the energy that's needed for the poor countries needs to be as clean as we can make it. I'm fortunate to be able to interact with climate scientists, and it does look very scary. I agree. But I just feel in my soul that it is solvable and that we'll get there. So I'm an optimist too, and I agree, but the way we're going to get there is by ruthless prioritization. And if we try to conflate keeping the planet inhabitable with you can justify continuing to burn coal. You can justify making natural gas more than just a bridge fuel. You can justify a lot of things by the other quality of life improvements that don't have to do with our carbon budget specifically. And who am I? I mean, I'm like a wealthy white guy, right? And so like, I'm not in a position to talk, right? But I'm actually stepping outside of myself. If the planet is not inhabitable for humans any longer, we all lose, including the poorest of the poor, right? And so are the odds higher that that comes about if we don't have ruthless prioritization? Well, I do think ruthless prioritization is necessary. And the solutions are, as you've worried about on your podcast, we need to do everything, you know, and we need to do it fast and we need to do it urgently. And I have no trouble with that. And I do think, unlike some of your other guests, that technology in the form, nuclear power has got to be part of that if we're going to get there. It just has to be part of it. It's not the only part. There are tons of other pieces. Like you say, there's like thousands of things that we have to do. So it is urgent and we do need to do that. But we also, in my view, need to take account of the poor people in the world that need energy and need economic activity. You talk to, you know, of colleagues in India and Pakistan and, you know, it's like, yeah, well, you know, there's a trade-off there and it's a tough trade-off. But where does that fit in terms of, so there's people that say that efficiency is impactful and there's people like you that say that actually with this rebound effect, efficiency isn't going to get us the gains that we, we think it will. But then there's this other toggle of ruthless prioritization on carbon budget with other things like equity and living standards and energy abundance and things like that. But are those toggles correlated in any way or are those two completely separate and distinct issues? I think what brings them together is the innovation that you talk about for clean energy technology. That's the path. And we should be having much greater R&D funding for that. The solution is on the energy supply side. And that means technological advance. And that is beneficial to both sides of that equation, right? You develop clean energy for poor countries, that's good. Okay, so I'd like to go one level deeper there. So the rebound effect won't get us nearly as much as we think it will. And we also have to factor in making sure that the billion plus people without basic electricity in the world still get to rise up and have the basic needs that we take essentially for a right here in the West. And so given those, that means that we need to really step up and get more aggressive in some other areas. That's what I'm hearing, right? That's part of it. Okay. So I'd love to talk about 
hear from you what those areas are in a way that's maybe one level more specific, but it would also be great to talk about if that's part of it, what are the other parts that we haven't yet discussed? The other part of it is that there's good evidence that as countries go through development and industrialize, that their emissions start to level off. You know, there's something called the environmental Kuznets curve. And I just just reviewed a paper yesterday from Pakistan showing that as they've shifted toward the services sector, countries that early stage development have to build the infrastructure of modernity, and that's energy hungry and dirty and so forth. But once they get above that, all of a sudden, that begins to dominate their economy and emissions. So a solution <laughs> is getting those people wealthier, because wealthier will in and of itself, in the long run, reduce emissions more than if they stay at the current stage that they're at. And we just say, okay, well, you're on your own now. We've done what we can. Yeah, yeah, we had a pretty privilege for a couple hundred years and ate up most of the fossil fuels. And so you guys figure it out. I guess the point I'm making is that as countries develop, we see that there are improvements in emissions. And that, I think, means that if we dedicate effort to that, to getting those people what they need, in the long run, we'll be better off emissions-wise than if we don't. I've heard lots of people come on this podcast and say that we can't forget about energy poverty and we have to factor in energy poverty. You're the first person to say what I think I just heard, which is that by focusing on energy poverty, that is actually an impactful decarbonization solution. Is that what I'm hearing? That's right. Over time. I mean, at the beginning, no, it'll look like it's more, but over time, yeah. So then the other thing that happens too is that as countries get rich, their fecundity rates drop. And population growth diminishes and you get kind of a saturation of population. And right now, Africa is kind of the key uncertainty there because, you know, as to what population will be. But a lot of forecasts are saying that by 2015, we'll have peaked, we'll have topped out on population globally with possibly a slight decline after that. And why? Well, because as they get wealthier, they have fewer children. Well, I guess I'm no economist, but just from being a student of the world, if you will, it seems to me that if you look at our country, the abundance that we've had, and we have now generations that don't know it any other way that are on this planet. And so they think that's just like baseline because that's what they were born into. And so for those people does the consumption really slow down because it seems like it just speeds up or it just it just stays or maybe even accelerates, but it just it's like past the point of diminishing return where it's not about utility anymore. It's just about consumption for consumption's sake. I have a slightly different view of that, which is that I'm looking at civilization 50, 100 generations from now and can it sustain is that there is a saturation or satiation point for consumption. Just taking myself as an example, you know, it's like, I don't want any more than I have, you know, I got food, I got shelter, uh, uh, clothes, I got an internet, I live in California, which is fantastic, you know, 
But I think, uh, you know, it's difficult. You don't want to generalize from one data point, right? But there is evidence that as countries get wealthier, there's a tendency for consumption to saturate and move toward, uh, you're talking about more generally about utility, toward, say, more leisure time. Eating stuff when you're not hungry just because it's there, like crappy food, buying stuff you don't need just because like you had a bad day, right? Like all these things that are just like, uh, they're like destructive symptoms of abundance of wealth. Yeah. There's something to what you're saying there for sure, you know, and lots of us do stuff like that. But again, in the long of time. And you're so used to getting handed things or having it easy for you that there's a reason why such a high percentage of immigrants are the entrepreneurs, right? Because like they know how to create from nothing. We think we know how to create from nothing, but like we don't even realize that we started on third base. We are in such a privileged position. And that's why one of the reasons I think we should always hesitate to form judgments about others in the world that aren't nearly as fortunate. And we should recognize our good fortune. And like I say, I think in the long of time, we'll see there be a saturation of consumption and increase in leisure time and a little more saving for retirement and just general appreciation, direct appreciation of nature and natural capital. That part of the utility function will come into play and help us out. So then let's look at the portfolio of our time and resources. So if you want to solve climate change most effectively, I mean, you have energy poverty, you have policy stuff, you have innovation, you have R&D budgets, you have clean technology, you have micromobility, you have fixing aviation. You, I mean, you could do anything, right? So what would you do? <laughs> yeah, this is the thing I, I love about your podcast is that whole theme is that there's just so many avenues. How do you pick a place to try to do something. I'm sort of taking this as equivalent to a question about, oh, this is the billion dollar question, isn't it? You're asking me here. I'm not. I, I haven't even gotten to that one yet. Right now, I'm just asking, what area should we be leaning into? Right? Like, we haven't even talked about capital, how to allocate that. I'm trying to understand. It's like we've talked about how energy efficiency is not that, in your view. We've talked about how energy poverty is an area that is underinvested in, but we haven't talked about where to prioritize it and instead of what. Okay, instead of efficiency, let's say. Well, if it's instead of efficiency, what fills out the rest of that portfolio? And is energy poverty where we put 80% of our attention? Is it where we put 5% of our attention? I'm just trying to understand context. I know, I know. And that's the thing I was saying about your podcast I love is that you're sort of saying, look, let's if we have limited resources, where do we put it and how do we know? Yours is just one viewpoint, but I don't want to leave the show without understanding your viewpoint. So I understand that you've done some work in the rebound effect and I understand that you've been awakened about energy poverty, right? But like, you're an optimist. Why are you an optimist? And what will we actually do that will make your optimistic visions come true? Yeah, well, again, I'd say the first thing is nuclear power has got to be you look at the cleanest economies in the world and it's nuclear power that has gotten them there so instead of wind and solar no wind and solar is going gangbusters at least in terms of its cost advantages and there's no it's a there's got to be a blend of nuclear and 
renewables. It's just we're far and figuring out battery technology with variable sources like wind. And we can't do that now. That's not going to get us where we need to go. It's part of it, but it's not alone going to get us there. We need nuclear. And what do we do to get that? Because it's not cost competitive today, correct? That's probably true, but it kind of depends on how you evaluate cost, you know, with the extra long lifetime of nuclear and so forth. But new R&D, next generation nuclear, small modular reactors, that's got to be given a real high priority. Take China, for example. China and India are both projected to be installing so much coal capacity. Over, I was involved in a study for the Asian Development Bank, and this was 2012. At that point, the forecast showed that developing Asia alone, ignoring the rest of the world, emissions by 2030 were going to break the two degree C limit. And China's on top of it, getting better at nuclear and so forth. But there's the best thing that could happen in the world is if they could magically change their plans from coal to nuclear. And there's gas is a bridge roll. There's that whole thing. But, but since they can't, how does energy poverty fit into all of this? Should we keep building coal plants because so many people in the world don't have access to, to basic energy? You know, that's the ethical question that I leave in your hands. It's not for me to say that. It's for my colleagues in India and China to make that judgment, in my view. So nuclear is one thing you'd like to see more of. What else? I would like to see push for energy efficiency. It has other benefits besides reductions. And chances are, the evidence seems to say it's rebound is not going to be 100% or increase energy use by deploying energy efficiency. So keep doing that. Keep energy efficiency front and center, build on it. Just don't fool yourself that that's going to be the solution. So between energy efficiency and nuclear and renewables, pour money at it. What's the role of government in all of this and what's the role of policy? Well, I think government's role is, first of all, the RD&D, bump that up a lot. And then there's people like Bill Gates that are <laughs> you know, rich enough to do it on their own, you know. So RD&D and keeping the options open as long as we can, not committing to particular tracks, except in as much as we have to, so that we'll have the flexibility to take an off-ramp here or there and do something else. I think there's a role for government policy to make sure that that flexibility isn't interfered with. Do we need a price on carbon? As an economist, there's always this appeal of the price on carbon. I like it. There are other economists that I respect that say, no, it's not going to do the trick. And there's thorny issues having to do with income distribution that I think can be solved with payments to uh, users. And there's been examples like in British Columbia where it, it seems to have worked. But I think politically, it's just so many countries, it's, I doubt that it will, even if it is 
a really good solution. And there's lots of reasons it gets all the right price signals. I doubt that we're going to see anything major in that direction. I think we have to turn elsewhere. One other question before we get to the $100 billion question is just that I saw your name and bio on the Breakthrough Institute's website. So you're affiliated with them in some way, right? Yep. And I know they're big proponents of this eco-modernist manifesto, right? Stuart Brand and uncoupling GDP growth from reliance on natural resource, but continuing to push strongly on GDP growth as kind of an engine of productivity and innovation for the future. Do you agree with that? I do. I do agree with that. I think they've got the right vision. And you've had Ted uh, Nordhaus on your show. Jessica Lovering, I see, has been on your show. They have, both of them. They're really smart people. I always learn something from those people. And I always learn something from my colleagues at the Carnegie Institute, scientists there that I'm hoping you'll interview Maybe Ken Caldera. I think you maybe said that you might be able to. One of those I would love smart. to. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's nibbling. He's thinking about it. I, it seems like he's going to come on, but a little push from you can't hurt. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll prod him a bit. It's just in the general framework of what you're doing. By the way, I just admire what you are doing, Jason. It's sort of like, let's learn. Let's talk to a whole bunch of different people. Don't lock in your worldview until you never lock it in. I've tried to never lock mine in. Just learn and grow. And somebody like Ken Caldera, I mean, he's so smart, man. Atmospheric, ocean scientist, energy systems guy. He has the ability to ask what appear to be very simple questions. And it's like, so, Harry, why are you saying? And I say, well, it'd be, um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Let me go think about that for a while. And he does that with all his postdocs. He has this stable of these incredibly smart postdocs from all over the world. And that's, he guides them that way. So it's keeping an open mind, learning as much as you can, and just what you are trying to do. And to your great credit, are bringing others along, helping them learn along with you. I think if we're learners, we got to be lifelong learners and allow ourselves to change perspectives as we go. Ken is a real good example of that and highly respected scientists, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so where did we start with eco-modernism? You had said that you do believe that continued focus on GDP growth is the right path. And why do you think that is? What led you to that conclusion? Well, It was that incident in Paris in 1977 where this guy looked me in the eye and said, you've never been hungry a day in your life, have you? And that was like, worldview just shifted so that GDP growth, mostly I'm thinking GDP growth globally, but mostly should be for developing worlds. How do we get out of this cycle of inequality, though, whereas capitalism continues to play out, the rich keep getting richer? Yeah, no, that's a really difficult and I'd say urgent problem because there's inequality even within the developed world, right? We have poverty close to home and serious poverty, and that's that's got to be dealt with. In the end, the solution is somehow getting people's incomes up so they have enough to save because 
my current working theory is that the problem with a key part of the problem of inequality is that there's a shortage of capital. There's not enough capital. Well, when there's not enough capital, what happens? Well, capitalists can can claim rents, right? It's short. Labor is surplus. Capital's short. It claims rent. So what we need is to have households saving, which is a source of capital. And we see a little bit of that right now with the um, close to being full employment in this country. The wages are starting to tick up. Yeah, yep. So labor is getting a gain now because there's not a shortage of labor yet, but it's no longer a big surplus when compared to capital. So I think the solution at least will look like low-income cohorts having income enough, high enough to be able to save. And I think that will be a route to solving that really thorny problem. So if someone came to you and said, Harry, here's $100 billion, and you're not the godfather of rebound anymore, you're the godfather of climate change, and you can allocate that however you'd like. The only caveat is you need to do it in a way that maximizes its impact on the problem. Where do you put it? Yeah, well, I'm going to cheat on this a little bit because my first reaction is to say, well, I'll tell you what. You need to go listen to Jason Jacobs' interview of himself and how he answered that question because (laughs) that seemed like the right answer to me. We kind of need to do everything, but you'll force me into one thing, and that would be energy poverty. My sense is it has the long-term largest potential impact on climate mitigation. We're going to tease this episode with that quote when we publish it, and that's going to stimulate a whole bunch of dialogue because nobody's ever said that before. Out of the hundreds of people I've talked to, you're the very first person that said that not only is energy poverty morally the right thing to do to care about that, but that actually it's the most impactful thing you can do for climate change. I wish that were true. I don't know personally that I'm there. I think it's interesting that that's where you are, and I think that's a worthy discussion. You know, I, I want to get more more voices and more minds around that topic as well because it's a good one to push on. Last question, Harry, is just, I have to ask this a different way because I, I used to say, hey, what's your advice for people listening that want to figure out how they can help? But I need to get a little more specific because our listeners, if I'm honest, it's not Aunt Mildred trying to make her windows more efficient, right? Like these people are serious because this is not an entertainment podcast. If if you come looking for entertainment, you don't stay because as much as we might think we're entertaining, like we're not that interesting, right? But if you want to learn, we're talking about a bunch of thorny stuff that's really important to talk about and press on. And, and so hopefully you come out of here with your mind expanded and learning, but you got to be serious because it's not interesting, right? And so for those people that are serious that are here, what advice do you have for them? Okay, my advice is to throw yourself into learning as much as you can, listen to as many voices as you can, Don't close down your worldview. And what will happen is you'll find a thread that you can pull on that indicates the pathway where you have mechanical leverage, where you can have impact. And it'll be better informed. It'll be fully informed. And (laughs) my sense is that's what happens if you talk to a whole bunch of smart people and keep an open mind and 
that something will pop that says, hey, that's something I could make a contribution in. I like that because I get this question all the time of like, hey, you know, I'm whatever doing this totally unrelated thing and I want to focus on climate change now. Like, what should I do? And I can't answer it. And so it's hard for me to even keep taking those meetings because I can't answer it in a short way. But actually, the long form way that you just said, I'm probably going to write a blog post that that tries to give the answer I would actually give because it's not it's not the clean, crisp easy to operationalize answer that everybody wants, but it's the true answer. Yeah. Yeah. And the other piece of advice I'd say is listen to your podcast. (laughs) There's some resources there, very smart people that you talk to, whole different perspectives. That kind of thing is part of listening and learning and not locking into a point of view. Well, I feel like this was a great discussion. Anything I didn't ask you or any parting words for listeners? I can't think of anything. Just again, I admire what you're doing. It's the right thing. And I know that it comes at personal cost to you. And that's admirable. Well, thanks so much, Harry. And thanks for all of your work in this important area as well. So I appreciate you coming on the show so much. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note, that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.